And do open your Bibles as well to our passage this morning. We are in Jeremiah chapter 34. And the Red Church Bible is on page 797. Jeremiah 34. We have quite a, a long reading this morning. We're going to do chapter 34 and 35. I'll read quite quickly through it, so please follow along in your Bibles if you can. I'm going to start at verse 8 of Jeremiah 34. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. But afterwards they changed their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you for six years, you must let him go free. Your fathers, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned round and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. Down to chapter 35, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jezaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazina, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah, son of Shalem, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine. Because our forefathers, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Armenian armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine, because they obey their forefathers' commands. But I've spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you shall live in the land I've given to you and your fathers. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefathers gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen. I am going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, shall never fail to have a man to serve me. Um, If we could have our Bibles open in that passage, that would be really helpful for us to follow um, how it works. So a few weeks ago, Dan explained to us um, that actually following the narrative of Jeremiah is quite difficult. Broadly, there are three sections to to the book. Chapters 2 to 29 are chapters about Israel and Judah's sin and God's coming judgment because of it. Chapters 31 to 33 are about the future that God still has for his people. And then from chapter 34 to the end of the book, we get the details of the dying days of the nation of Judah. So we're going to look at chapter 34 today, the start of this last section. And along with it, we're going to look at chapter 35. In chapter 35, Jeremiah remembers back to an event 10 years previously, telling a story of an event involving the Rechabites, which stands as a contrast to the story of the king that Jeremiah was preaching to now. And by contrasting King Zedekiah, the king in front of Jeremiah, to the Rechabites of 10 years ago, the headline question of these two chapters is this, who owns you? Who owns you? It reminds me of a story about the rich businessman on a holiday in the Caribbean, He was walking along a jetty one day, and he heard a a local young man calling out, do you mind if I just have a few dollars to buy a drink? And as the businessman looked, he saw this guy with his feet up in the boat. And he thought, oh, I'm going to teach this young man a lesson or two. So he went up to the lad and said, hey, I'm not going to give you any money, but here's some advice. Go to school and get some education. Why would I want to do that, replied the young man because you could go to university. What for? To get a job. And what would that do for me, asked the young man. Well, a job would get you money so you could buy a house and food and clothing and things you've always dreamt of. You could move up in the world and settle down and have kids. 
And where would that lead? It would lead to a career and responsibility. It could lead to you owning your own business and being respected by so many people. And you could be like me, taking foreign holidays and seeing the world. And then what? asked the young man. Well, if you worked hard enough and made a success of your life, you could eventually retire and buy a boat and relax for the rest of your life. What do you think I'm doing now? said the young man. It illustrates two worldviews coming in and colliding. The young man was owned by a worldview that said hard work would get you nowhere. The businessman was, was consumed by a worldview that said hard work will get you everywhere. And it illustrates that we're all owned by someone or something. And similarly, when we look at these two chapters in Jeremiah, they focus on the contrast between Zedekiah, who is owned by a secular worldview that he's not going to turn away from, and the Rechabites who are bound to promises made hundreds of years before whose faithfulness leads to God's eternal rewards. They are owned by God. So these chapters act as a challenge to the reader. Work out who owns you, and then decide whose ownership you'd rather be under. Which brings us to our our first point, owned by a secular worldview, chapter 34. Owned by a secular worldview. For those of us who are not clear what I mean by a secular worldview, let me explain for a few minutes. A secular worldview is trying to make sense of the world without God in it. A secular worldview has no right or wrong, no second chances, and the only reference point you have is the people around you, the culture that shapes you. That's a secular worldview. Britain today is a secular society. We are owned by a secular worldview. So chapter 34 is the beginning of the story of the end of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, had besieged Jerusalem with his armies in 588 BC and would eventually destroy the city within 18 months. And yet in the opening opening verses, 1 to 7, which we didn't read, we're reminded of God's offer to the king. God's word still comes to the king, King Zedekiah, and promises peace if only he will listen to the word of the Lord and submit to what the word of the Lord tells him. And it seems to work. Look at verse 8 with me. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for their slaves. Everyone was to free their Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Hebrew in bondage. What's going on here is Zedekiah is basically saying, look, I I understand what God's word has told me about slavery, and I'm going to do what it says and free every Hebrew that is a slave in our country and say they are no longer slaves, they are free to go. In the midst of the chaos, it seems as though Zedekiah is finally turning back to God and doing something good. In a fit of repentance, he frees the Hebrew slaves. But then when you put events from verse 21 in this chapter, and then turning over the page to chapter 37, verse 5, what you get is the Egyptians come from, the the Egyptian armies come from the south and threaten the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, 
And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he removes himself from the siege and goes and deals with the Babylonians, which means suddenly the siege of Jerusalem is broken. At which point Zedekiah goes, hooray, I'm going to have all my slaves back, thank you very much. And he enslaves all the people who were once slaves but were made free. He goes back on his covenant. And look at what, verse, what God says in, in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is, what the word of the God, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrews who have sold themselves to you. After they have served you six years... You must let them go free. Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. It's carefully reasoned. God shows the people of Judah how their unrepentant hearts have turned away from their covenant promises that came out of their own rescue from slavery. God says, Look at your heritage. People, look at your heritage. You were once slaves, a whole nation of slaves, oppressed and abused as slaves. How can you have slaves? But look at what Zedekiah had done. He'd renewed that covenant. Lord, we're not going to have slaves anymore. And then he went back on it. He broke it again. Verse 15, God says, Recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Can you see how far God had been pushed? that willful disobedience of Zedekiah and the Jewish people. And it shows us how the following verses from verse 17 onwards are not knee-jerk reaction. They are not a random act of revenge by God. Zedekiah's willful disobedience causes God to hand them over to the slavery of their worldview. That's the theme of slavery running through this chapter. Look at verse 17 with me. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You've not obeyed me. You've not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now I could proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. There's a sense in which God hands them over to the desires of the heart, of their heart. Handing them over to the thing that owns them. God was handing them over to a worldview that where there is no God. There's only what the, uh, the world can offer. And, and that freedom is a sarcastic freedom. Because essentially, God is handing them over to the slavery of belonging to the world. A slavery without rescue. A slavery without hope. 
a slavery without a future. It's a chilling release. But it shocks us as readers that God has finally come to the end of his warnings. And that when God frees Israel in this passage, it is a freedom into the full horror of a world without his rule and care and love. And it brings us back to the question we started with. Who owns you? By that I mean, what is so important in your life that it controls you? What is so important that it controls your thinking, controls your self-esteem, controls everything you dream about, controls your goals, your family, your life, your hope, your all? What is it that truly owns you? Because everyone has something. There is no one in this world who is truly free-spirited. I remember a debate I once had on a parenting course with some new dads. And we were talking about teaching children what it means to have a worldview with God in the picture. And one of the dads said to me, well, well, I'm just not going to tell my children about God because I don't want to brainwash them. To which one of the other dads said, but isn't that brainwashing them the other way? That's a story that illustrates we cannot be neutral in this world about anything. Even if we try to be neutral about something, we are communicating a worldview. And just as we cannot be neutral about our views on God, we cannot be neutral about what we live for, about who owns us really. It might be our ego, our low self-esteem, our marriage, our money, our nation, our pleasure, our comfort, our relationships, our children. The list is endless. What God wants us to see is that to be controlled by anyone other than him is giving yourself to ownership that will not last and will lead to spiritual poverty. So who owns you? It brings us to the second chapter of our passage. I'm going to put it under the title, Owned by Obedience to God. Owned by Obedience to God. The Rechabites of the next chapter are a stark contrast to King Zedekiah. It's an odd chapter at at first reading. God tells Jeremiah to seek out a small tribe of desert nomads called the Rechabites. They had, as a people, given themselves to living by an ancient promise to a man who lived 250 years before them. They'd promised him, as his descendants, not to live in houses, not to own property, to grow crops, and not to drink wine. But Jeremiah was told by God to bring them to the temple and serve them wine. It's a test. Can you see that? It's a test. Are they going to stick to the promises they had made? Who owns them? Will they keep their covenant or not? Having turned down the offer of wine in verse 14, God sees their faithfulness to their ancestral promises, and then he makes a greater point. And this is the big thing. It's a greater point he makes. He says in verse 14 of of, of chapter uh, 35, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To to, To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. 
But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefathers gave them. But these people, the the, the Jewish people, have not obeyed me. What God is doing here is taking that small example of obedience to a person and using it to say how much more. Let me explain that a little bit. The Rechabites, their promises were obscure and almost odd, even for the day. Jehonadab was a genocidal warlord who lived 250 years prior to the events of Jeremiah chapter 35. His descendants over those years were bound by an ancestral promise that he made his descendants make to him. And God's point is simple. If those descendants could keep an obscure promise to a historical war criminal for 250 years, how much more ought the chosen people of God live according to the promises of their loving, caring, almighty, patient, powerful God? Do you get that scale? It is kind of tiny, massive. This is just too big to ignore, and these people have kept something tiny and obscure. That's the point that God is making. And that's the contrast in these chapters. If chapter 34 challenges us with the slavery of Zedekiah, slavery to a, to, to, to a, a secular worldview that finally God says, if you want that worldview, have that worldview. I allow you to be enslaved by that worldview. My, world, my word will no longer call you out of that, that worldview. I give you to it, to eternal destruction. That's chapter 34. And then you've got chapter 35, the Rechabites and their faithfulness to an obscure random promise 250 years ago how much more how much more God's people to God's promises do you see the contrast slavery who owns you you might be asking what, what, what does being a slave to God look like? Well, it looks like humble obedience to the master you love. And interestingly, there's a precedent here in the Bible. You see, just after the covenant command to set slaves free in Deuteronomy, I I read that earlier, it's a a blanket command. Every, Every six years, bang, slaves go free. And there's one condition that one exception to that command. And it's Deuteronomy 15, verse 16, and it says this. If your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl, that's like a nail, and push it through his earlobe, 
into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant too. So there were some slaves wandering around with a massive, massive hole in their ear. And it marked them out as slaves of obedience. And that's the precedent for God's people today. In other words, slavery under God's rule leads to a lifelong brotherhood. A slavery forged by a loving obedience to a careful master, a slavery actually in name only. And that relationship is echoed in the New Testament where Paul in Romans 6 contrasts being a slave to a secular worldview with the slavery of choosing to live in obedience to Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6 verse 16 with me. If you could turn in your Bibles to that chapter. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Actually, if someone's got a church Bible, could they shout out the number? 1133. Thank you so much. Verse 16 of of Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, a secular worldview which leads to death, as we've seen with Zedekiah, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. What does Paul mean by being a slave to sin? Well, in Zedekiah's day, it was just that, a slavery to a secular worldview. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you will be enslaved to the worldview around you, whether you see it or not. If you think you're free, well, actually... You've just got to look and, and, be, and, and, and examine yourself carefully. Because if, even if you think you're free and free from the secular worldview around you, actually you're still a slave to a variation of it. And I know that grates with our culture because our culture says, I am an individual above everything else. But essentially our secular worldview is about living in a world where there is no God and living in a world where Everyone has to think the same for fear of offending someone. You may say, I'm an individual, but we're all individuals. Let's say that in unison. The Bible says that the only freedom, true freedom, from a secular worldview is one where God, where Jesus Christ is your center and your hope. Let me read on in, in, in Romans uh, chapter 6. Verse 17, it starts with this phenomenal phrase, but thanks be to God. Here's the way out of that slavery, but thanks be to God. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, a secular worldview, and have become slaves to righteousness. So true freedom from a secular worldview means listening to and following the God who came into this world and died to take God's anger at us for rejecting him. And because Jesus, God the Son, 
took the anger of God the Father on the cross. Whoever believes in him will become a slave to him, a slave to his righteousness and not to the secular worldview that owns us. And what does that look like? It means we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed to own that secular, that, 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 that righteous worldview. So just as an, an ancient Hebrew slave would have gone around proudly, proudly parading the massive hole in their earlobe, that was a sign to everyone, I love my master and I have sold myself to him with love and gratitude. I am his. So Christians today walk around with that same heart. I belong to Jesus. I am his. And I seek time and time again to belong to what it means to live for him in attitude and behavior and obedience. And it means taking ownership of the covenant conditions of belonging to Christ. If we belong to Christ, we must actually live it. Listen to the rest of Romans 6, verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Isn't that slavery? What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Zedekiah proves that. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Don't the Rechabites tell us that? The benefits of living for Jesus, for, for, for having a heart changed by his righteousness, by his forgiveness, and saying, I belong to him, I want to serve him as a slave that serves a master, that leads to holiness and eternal life. And it's not boring, is it? Who here has been thrilled to hear the Bible explained or gone away from a meeting with your heart on fire with what you've just learnt about Christ? You're allowed to nod, by the way. Who here has had that experience when our singing has so lifted our hearts we've wanted to shout in praise and adoration to God? Who here has been in that situation when the preacher is preaching so relevantly that you feel he's been following you all week just to preach that sermon to you? Who here has ever been to a prayer meeting defeated and left encouraged? Who has been blessed by the sacrificial giving or by another Christian brother or sister? That is what slavery to Christ looks like. It is blessing after blessing from God because of his relationship with us personally. It is God shaping our character and our heart and our motives so that our dreams and fantasies are more and more taken by his will and enslaved to his mastership, willfully and lovingly. And when we fail, oh, just compare it. Compare it to the secular worldview. When you fail in a secular worldview, isn't the media on your back? Isn't there lack of forgiveness? Isn't there a, 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 a self-sanctimonious judgmentalism? But look at what happens when you fail in Christ. There is the cross of Christ reminding, of us, reminding us of who has brought us out of slavery. There is the forgiveness of God encouraging us to stand once more in fellowship to him. And the gathering around of 
Christian brothers and sisters in love and care and compassion. Praise God, we are wretched slaves in, ha- in the hands of such a loving master. Does it not want you to lay down your life in love and adoration for him? That is slavery to Christ. That is being owned by Jesus. So as we look at these chapters, one about a desperately lonely king, ankerless in his secular worldview that will eventually destroy him. The other about a faithful bunch of nomads who, nomads who bind themselves to an ancient promise that shows us how much greater is God's offer of relationship It's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? My dear brothers and sisters, who owns you? Who owns you? If you want to work out who owns you, ask yourself what you dream about. Who owns you? Ask yourself... What was the last excuse you made concerning the church prayer meeting? What owns you? And yet look at the love of Christ. Isn't it precious? That he has laid down his life for us in our failings, in our turning towards the secular worldview around us and we've all done it. He frees us to belong to his ownership once more. Let's do that this morning. Knowing that it leads to that promise that the Rechabites received at the end of their chapter. It's beautiful. They're promised, you will never cease to have a man stand before me. Ultimately, it points to Christ. There is a man like them, obedient to the covenant promises of God, standing before the throne of God now, on the throne of God, a true, greater Rechabite. And we belong to him. And because we belong to him, we inherit his eternal life and his righteousness. There is the true promise in this chapter. Let's rejoice in belonging to Jesus. And can I challenge you, if you do not belong to Jesus, if you belong to the secular worldview that we live in, ask yourself, where does it lead? Where does it lead? Let's praise God for his ownership. Let's ask ourselves, do we fully belong to him? Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who has brought us out of slavery to sin and death. 
we give ourselves to you this morning once more. We confess to you that so many times. We have wanted to belong to the secular worldview around us that cuts you out. And we are truly sorry. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit who sets us apart as your people and your slaves to righteousness. May we live by the Spirit. May we love by the Spirit. And may our obedience to you be evident to all. And may we stand just like the Rechabites stood, but in a greater way, for the love of our eternal King. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What I'd like to do is just give us a couple of minutes. If you could bow our heads, if we could bow our heads and reflect on those, those two chapters and ask ourselves the question, who owns me? And then we'll finish our, our service. There's tea and coffee in the foyer. You've seen the elders on the platform here. If you'd like to grab one of them, um, please do after the service. If you'd like to talk to God with one of them about who owns you, uh, you'd be welcome to do that. Let's bow our heads just for a couple of minutes.